I'd like to invite you now at this time to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, we come uh, to chapter 7, and I'd like to begin reading in verse 1 down to verse 9. So let us once again give ear to the reading of God's Word. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife, and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you, because of your lack of self-control. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say, it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Let's ask his blessing upon it now. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the fact that it is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And so we pray that as your word is proclaimed today, that you would pierce our hearts with your truth, that you would grant to us faith to believe all that is promised to us in the gospel, as well as hearts of gratitude for all that Christ has done. We ask this in his name. Amen. Well, beloved in the Lord, reading First and Second Corinthians is often like listening to a one-sided phone call. I'm sure each and every one of us have done this where there's somebody in the room and they're on the phone and you hear what that person is saying, but you obviously don't hear what the other person is saying. But at the end of the conversation, you are able to piece together who they spoke to and for, for the most part, what they talked about simply from hearing one side of the conversation. Well, ultimately, that's what we have in in Paul's letter here to the Corinthians. As he is conversing with them and responding to them, we hear what Paul has to say, and sometimes there's quotations of what the Corinthians have been saying, but for the most part, we're, we're only getting one side of the conversation. And so it's left to us and interpreters of Scripture to piece together exactly what was going on at Corinth and how, why it is that Paul is speaking to them in the way that he is. Well, up until this point in the letter, Paul has likely been addressing issues that have been reported to him verbally, probably from Chloe's people, the people that he mentions all the way back in chapter 1, who likely were in Ephesus on business, but were able to deliver this letter to Paul uh, from the Corinthians, but also to verbally report some of the issues that have been going on in the church, stuff like division, stuff like gross sexual immorality and the other issues. Those are the things that Paul felt that he needed to address first and foremost. But now here in chapter 7, the Apostle Paul begins to address things that had been brought to his attention by way of a letter that the church in Corinth had written to him. That's why he says, concerning the matters about which you wrote. 
We know that the Apostle Paul had written to them previously because he mentions that in chapter 5 when he said, I wrote to you first about this, but now I'm writing to you about that. And so the Apostle Paul and the, and the Corinthians were kind of pen pals. And what we call 1st and 2nd Corinthians are just two of, prob- of what is likely several letters of correspondence between Paul and the church. And so now he begins to address these issues that they had raised before him, and he's going to address them in order. But it is interesting to see the context of from chapter 5 and 6 into chapter 7. You may recall in chapter 5 and 6, Paul, for the most part, was addressing issues of sexual immorality within the church. And now he turns from those abuses of sexuality to the proper sphere of human sexuality according to God's design, namely that in marriage. And so he begins to address issues of marriage as he addresses those who are married, those who aren't married, those who are thinking about getting married, all of these spheres of uh, stages in life, he, he speaks God's word to them. But he starts off by quoting something that they had written to him. And that quotation is found there in verse 1. And the quote is, It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. This is not what the Apostle Paul said. This is what some in the church in Corinth were saying. It is, it is good for a man not to literally touch a woman. You see, there were those in the church who were espousing a type of complete and total celibacy even within marriage. And you may wonder, where on earth did they get this idea? Well, perhaps it was a distortion or a misunderstanding of what our Lord Jesus Christ taught with regard to how it, is, how it will be after the resurrection. He says, for example, in Matthew chapter 22, for in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. They're talking about that scenario of the woman who had seven husbands that the Sadducees had brought, saying, well, whose husband will she, will she have, or who will be her husband in, after the resurrection? Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. That was the point. But you see, they were perhaps distorting that teaching, thinking, well, if that's how it is in the resurrection, then maybe we should be acting that way now. Paul also mentions uh, heretics, false teachers, uh, uh, that he warns Timothy against some who prevent or forbid marriage. And yet we might wonder, thinking, remembering the issues that we were addressing last week, as Paul was condemning some of the Corinthians for going and visiting prostitutes, you may wonder how on earth could these two different views, one saying that it's okay to visit prostitutes, and another view saying, uh, uh, espousing complete and total abstinence and celibacy, even within marriage, how on earth could those two radically different opposing views coexist within the same congregation? Well, I think ultimately the reason, by, the reason why both of these views could coexist within the same congregation stems from the same root problem. That is, the Corinthians had a low view, a negative view of our body. They despised the physical, uh, our physical existence and somehow elevated what we might call our spiritual existence. There were even those within the congregation who denied the physical resurrection. 
They denied the fact that at the last day, these bodies will be glorified physically. And so you could see how if you, if you start from that premise that what, that the body is not good, you can see somebody going in one of two radically different directions. If the body is not good, then everything we do with the body ultimately doesn't matter. And that's why we saw that slogan, all things are lawful. Every sin we do is outside of the body. It, it doesn't have an effect on my spiritual existence. And so you see that licentiousness, all things are lawful, I'm going to do whatever I want, including visiting prostitutes. But the other extreme might view, seeing that the body is evil, it would therefore say that any physical pleasure must necessarily be evil. That somehow if it feels good, it must be bad. And that clearly is not the case. As we saw last week, the Lord uh, created us both body and soul. He created us uh, as physical creatures, and he therefore uh, commands us to glorify him in our body, as we saw at the end of chapter 6. Those warnings that we considered last week, the warnings against sexual immorality taken positively, is a strong affirmation of the fact that what we do in the body has eternal consequences. God made us as physical creatures. When he created man and woman in the beginning, and all of the created realm, he looked at it and he said, it is very good affirming our physical existence and creating us for physical life and existence. See, that tendency that somehow uh, if, if if it has to do with our physicality or if it's a physical pleasure, it must be evil, that permeates our society. Whether it's applied to eating or drinking or in this context, sexuality, all of those things somehow must have negative connotations. Just think of the way that we describe something like eating chocolate cake. We call it sinful. We call it decadent. Right? We use these negative evil terms to describe something that ultimately is good. Now, don't get me wrong. We can very easily take God's good gifts and the pleasures he gives us in life, and we can abuse those things. We can engage in things like gluttony or drunkenness or sexual immorality. But we ought not to think that the things themselves are necessarily evil. Uh, enjoyed within their proper sphere, they are good gifts of, from God. And that, is, that includes what we see here with Paul's language about marriage. And that's why the Apostle Paul contradicts this saying of the Corinthians in verse 2 when he says, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, knowing that we are made as sexual creatures... The Apostle Paul says that shouldn't be the case, and and clearly sexual immorality was going on within the church, and so therefore Paul commends marriage as God's design for both a man and a wife. In contrast to what the Corinthians were saying, it is not good for a man to touch a woman, we find the words of Scripture in in God's words in in Genesis 2.18 that it is not good for man to be alone. Indeed, indeed, God create, created male and female ultimately to go together. And that's why the Apostle Paul says every man should have a wife and every wife should have her husband. Something I want you to notice right off the bat is Paul's language here applies both to husband and wife throughout this passage. 
He doesn't just say every man should have a wife. He says every wife should have a husband. And each and every command and each and everything he says with regard to marriage applies equally both to husband as well as to the wife. Here Paul is, is presenting equality in marriage. He presents marriage as something that is mutually beneficial, something that is a mutual blessing that both parties being equal are joined together. And that's why he says in verse 3, therefore, the husband should give his wife her conjugal rights. Literally, what is owed to her. He should give her her due. Physical intimacy, as we saw last week, is the deepest form of communicating love to another person that God gave us in this life. That's why it's so tragic when we pervert that good gift of God, but used properly. And exercise within the sphere of a, of a loving monogamous marriage, we see that this is part of God's design. This is, this is part and parcel of the marriage where two people become one flesh. And ultimately, that is a picture of our union with Christ. As Paul tells us in Ephesians 5 or even in, uh, in, back in chapter 6, where he says, if you are joined with the Lord, you become one spirit with him. Likewise, in a marriage, the two become one flesh. And he goes on to explain why it is that we owe this to our partner, ultimately because we do not have authority over our own body. In other words, we do not have exclusive rights to our own existence within a marriage. That's because in marriage, everything is given to the other. The one spouse, the husband, gives himself entirely over to the wife, and the wife gives herself entirely over to the husband. It's not two autonomous people living, living uh, cohabitating together. No, it is two people becoming one flesh. And that's why the example of the way in which Christ loves the church is a perfect pattern for the way in which husbands ought to love their wives, completely, uh, sacrificially giving himself over for the life of the church, and likewise, the church, her Lord. And that's how it is, the, the pattern we see in marriage. Now, one would expect that in the ancient world, the Apostle Paul would say that a woman does not have authority over her body and just leave it at that. But it's very fascinating to see the Apostle Paul apply that same exact language to the man. The man does not have authority over his body, but the wife does. This is radical language in the ancient world. Now, don't get me wrong, later on in chapter 11, the Apostle Paul will clearly explain that husbands are to assume the role of leadership within the marriage. They they are the head of the wife in that sense. But as far as sexuality goes within the confines of marriage, as far as that is concerned, all things are equal. All things are, are equal. The husband does not have authority over his own body with the wife and vice versa. And that is, as I said, radical, radical language, both in our day as well as in the Apostle Paul's day. Because especially in the Greco-Roman culture that that the Corinthians found themselves living in, a well-known double standard existed. Husbands were almost expected to fool around. But wives, on the other hand, were tightly regulated. Women in the ancient world were viewed as mere possessions to serve the pleasure of men. There's a, there was a saying 
that was bantered, uh, bantered about that went like this. We keep mistresses for our enjoyment, concubines to serve our person each day, but we have wives for the bearing of legitimate offspring and to be faithful guardians of the household. Now, how many men actually believe that is up for debate. But the fact that that would even be said just goes to show the role of women in the ancient world. And yet here we have the Apostle Paul speaking the biblical truth, uh, going all the way back to God's original design in the, with the creation of male and female in the beginning, showing how female was not created, the woman was not created to be a possession of the man, but the woman was created to complete the man. John Calvin, in his commentary on this passage, says that when Adam was created, he was, as it were, only half a man, and he needed the woman to complete him. If, if, uh, for, for these uh, new Christians coming to the faith, for them to come to the faith and, and enter into a marriage, they would have to completely adopt, uh, or adopt a completely different outlook for the way they viewed their wives. She is not your possession, but a co-laborer and an heir together with you of the grace of life. You need to appreciate that language that the Apostle Paul uses here to describe marriages as equal, the partners being equal in this aspect. But of course, some took that and went into the opposite extreme. And that's what Paul, that's what, that's what Paul is immediately addressing here when then he gives his exhortation in verse 5, do not deprive one another. You see, this new ascetic lifestyle that the Corinthians had adopted, in Paul's eyes, is a complete and total travesty of justice. This word uh, that he says, do not deprive one another, is the same word he used back in chapter 5, uh, or, or in chapter 6, when he was talking about the Corinthians taking each other to court and ripping each other off, depriving each other. In this, and, and he uses the same word here with regard to marriage. He says, stop depriving each other in this aspect. Except he gives a temporary concession. He says, for those couples who decide mutually if they want to take a break, and, and here he gives a temporary concession, but he gives stipulations. First of all, it needs to be mutually agreed upon. One partner couldn't just unilaterally decide, I'm going to take a break, uh, I'm going to, I, I'm going to uh, take a time out here. It needs to be mutually agreed upon. It needs to be for a limited amount of time, and it needs to be for the purpose of prayer. But then he says, quickly, you need to come back together, lest Satan tempt you. This is a time, it, it, Paul envisions that this time of prayer, if prolonged, may backfire and turn into a needless temptation. It's a time for prayer, not an endurance test. And yet, after even giving this temporary concession, the Apostle Paul makes clear that they don't have to do this. He, he says, it's not, a, it's not a command. You don't have to do this. Paul, I think, would agree with Peter that mistreating your spouse would be something that would hinder your prayers, not having intercourse. That's not going to prevent your prayers from going to heaven. After Paul clearly addresses the situation... He shifts in, chapter, in verse 7. 
So far, he's been addressing those who were married within the congregation and giving them appropriate and pastoral applications. And you have to, you have to appreciate how pastorally sensitive he was with his commands extending even into the bedroom. See, the Apostle Paul wanted happy and healthy marriages. Why? Because ultimately those bring glory to God. But now he begins to address others within the congregation who are not married. And so if you've been sitting here so far listening to the sermon thinking, well, that's all fine and good, but I'm not married, this part's for you. As the Apostle Paul gives his personal preference for a single life. Look there in verse 7. He says, I wish that all were as I myself am, that is, single. Now, the Apostle Paul is not contradicting what he said earlier about the blessed state of matrimony, but he is recognizing here that both marriage as well as a single life are both gifts from God. Do you notice that in verse 7? Each has his own gift, one of one kind, and one of another. There is a diversity of gifts amongst the people of God, and the Lord has not given the same gift to everyone, but he has distributed those gifts sovereignly to one and sovereignly to another. So the Apostle Paul here is saying, you need to recognize what your gift is, and you need to enjoy that gift. Not everyone has the gift of celibacy. Not everyone has the gift of living a happy and content single life. And even our Lord Jesus Christ taught that. For example, in Matthew chapter 19, after he gives a very strict teaching on the topic of divorce, his disciples' response is to say, well, if such is the case, if a man can't divorce his wife for any reason whatsoever, then maybe it would be better for us not to get married. And Jesus says to them, not everyone can receive the same, but only those to whom it is given. See, Jesus here speaks of this gift of being able to live a single life. And Paul says, it's good. It's a good gift. It's not a a second-class citizen. It's not a second-class type of of gift. It is equally good, actually, maybe even more glorifying to God. A single life and the gift of celibacy is just as glorifying to God, if not more so. We'll see later on in the chapter, when we get to verse 32, that Paul goes on to explain how it is that a single person can devote his or herself uh, more to the service of God. Just look there in verse 32. I'll read these verses quickly. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about the worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. See, the Apostle Paul is showing how it is that a a single person, somebody living a single life, could bring more glory to God because he or she is completely devoted to service of the Lord. And I think this contradicts the conventional wisdom of both the Greco-Roman world, 
that the Corinthians found themselves living in, as well as the Jewish culture that was steeped in the teaching of the Old Testament. Both of those cultures viewed marriage as the norm. It was just expected that you would end up getting married and raise a family. And even going back to the Old Testament, we see that clearly taught where the command, the repeated command, is to be fruitful and multiply. And the Israelites of old, they, they, they got married and, and women bore children in hopes that the Lord would ultimately redeem them, from the seed, uh, redeem them by the seed of the woman. There was, throughout the Old Testament, it was constantly pressed upon people to marry and to have children. And if somehow you were bereft of children, or or unable to be married, it was viewed as a curse. And women in the ancient world, and women even in the Old Testament, were identified primarily by the men in their lives, whether it be their fathers or eventually their husbands. But when we get to the New Covenant, with the birth of Jesus Christ, being born born of woman in fullness of time, we see a shift in the life of the covenant community. No longer is marriage the norm. No longer is marriage almost required. But a single life is also viewed as a gift of God. And women in particular, single women in particular, have a new identity in Christ. As the Apostle Paul says in Galatians 3, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ Jesus have put on Christ. There is neither Greek nor Jew. Some division that was made in the Old Testament. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. In other words, a woman's identity is not primarily found in the men in her life, whether it be her father or husband. But now, for the believer, for the, for the Christian single Christian woman, her primary identity is in Christ Jesus. And that's why a single Christian woman can bring just as much glory to God living that single life as a woman who is married or who has children. Now, the social structures that we find ourselves living in in this day and age, those things still remain. The Apostle Paul isn't isn't promoting some sort of radical egalitarianism or a flattening out of any and all distinctions in this everyday life. That's clearly the case, as we see, for example, in Ephesians 5 and 6, where we're supposed to submit to one another, Uh, wives submitting to their husbands, slaves submitting to masters, children submitting to your parents. But the key thing to remember here is that our primary identity is as new creatures in Christ Jesus. That's our primary identity. And all the other identities we have, whether it be a single person, a married person, a husband, uh, a wife, a a father, a mother, a child, a slave, a master, all of those are secondary, secondary identities. That, that must conform to our new identity in Christ. And so a wife submits to her husband in the Lord. And masters treat their slaves as servants of the Lord. It all has to do with our identity in Christ. And so whether married or not, the one thing we need to keep in mind, the one overarching theme that we find throughout uh, this portion of 1 Corinthians is that we are not our own. But we have been bought with a price, and we have been called to serve the Lord in whatever capacity he has called us. And we are to do that with contentment. We are to do that with contentment. You may be here today, and you may be single in life, but you want to get married. 
You may be married, but want to be single. But guess what? Your identity in Christ Jesus cannot automatically change that. The Lord has called you in the position you are at, and wherever you find yourself at, you need to be content. The Apostle Paul will have much to say about that later on in the chapter. But for right now, it's important to keep in mind that we are not our own. We, we, should, uh, we have been bought with a price, and we've been called to serve the Lord in the capacity that we are currently in. But then the Apostle Paul, in giving this pastoral advice and giving his own uh, suggestion that he thinks it's better for people, single people to remain single, if in fact that is their gift, he then makes clear that if that is not your gift, if you do not possess the gift of celibacy, then you should pursue marriage. He goes on to say it is better to marry than to burn with passion. That will, that, those words with passion are supplied. Literally, the Greek just says it's better to marry than to burn. And commentators wonder, well, what does Paul mean when he talks about burning? Some people suggest that he's talking about burning in hell and the consequences of living a sexually immoral life. I think that's a bit of a stretch. I think rather, I I think that supplying the words to burn with passion is the likely meaning. And the idea here is that, again, it's not an endurance test. If you do not possess the gift of celibacy, don't try to pursue it. It's the tragedy of the Roman Catholic Church, which requires celibacy of all of its priests. That's the glory of the rediscovery during the Reformation, that not everyone possesses the gift of celibacy. And Paul clearly teaches here that if you don't have that gift, then don't try to exercise it. Pursue marriage. It's important to keep in mind that the Apostle Paul here, when he says it's better to marry than to burn, he's not condoning hasty engagements or shotgun weddings. I can't tell you how many times young men will quote this passage to, to young women in hopes that they could get married overnight. Let's go to Vegas. It's not what the Apostle Paul's saying here. All Christians must exhibit self-control. As I said, we all need to be happy and content with wherever we find ourselves at. But the Apostle Paul's addressing those, especially widows, who are considering whether they ought to get married or not. In a day and age where the death rates were extremely high, where life expectancy was extremely low, it was very common to have widows and widowers who were relatively young in age. And so for these people, the Apostle Paul is is asking them to consider whether they could pursue a single life and to consider how they could glorify God if, in fact, they have that gift. But in fact, if they do not have that gift, they ought to get married. He informs them that they are not constrained one way or another. He's not putting a restraint upon them, but that they should consider how God has gifted them. And that's why the Apostle Paul, for example, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, will actually exhort that younger widows should remarry. For those who are relatively young, who who are still at a childbearing age, that they should remarry rather than, uh, than rely upon the church to support them for the rest of their lives. And so as we consider this passage and we sum up the Apostle Paul's teaching, it's important for us to be reminded of the fact that God has made us, made us both body and soul. He's made us this way so that we might glorify him and enjoy him forever. And in this passage, the Apostle Paul shows us how each and every one of us can glorify God in our body. As he tells us at the end of chapter 6, glorify God in your body as we enjoy his good gifts, 
whether it be the gift of marriage or whether it be the gift of singleness. Both of them are gifts of God that we can enjoy for his glory. May God grant you his grace in order that we might glorify him with our bodies. May God grant you his contentment so that we would be happy in the position that he has called us so that we might love him and serve our neighbor. Amen? Let's give thanks. Dear Lord Jesus Christ, we do thank you that in the fullness of time you were born of woman and born under the law in order to redeem us from the curse of the law and to grant to us the blessings of the Holy Spirit who gives us life, who assures us of justification, who conforms us more and more into your image and who at the last day will glorify us together with yourself. Lord, we pray that you would fill our hearts with gratitude for what you have done for us. We pray that you would enable us to to enjoy and exercise the gifts that you have bestowed upon each and every one of us. We ask all of this in your name. Amen.